first reaction was if you're home for the holidays, if you're spending time over the next few weeks, right, with family, yeah. maybe help your mom, your grandma, your wife. Uh, if you are with a woman who is spending time cooking and if she offers you leftovers, maybe just, just take, take them. them. <laughs> just it's not that hard. You don't even need to eat them. She won't even know. Uh, just... Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. Yes, science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sessa Nagash from San Diego State University. Today, Sessa will bring us a conversation about love is blind and body shaming and relationships. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Adult Children Move Out, Family Meals and Reflections on Parent Self-Sacrifice at the Moment of Transition. I'm not really sure if that's how the author is intended for the title to be read, but I like to add a little flair occasionally. And then in good or bad advice, we'll be discussing an Instagram post about how we spend time with friends and loved ones all in time for this winter holiday season. If you have any advice you want us to talk about, send it to us, please. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com, tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Every week we have some bonus content and good or bad advice. To get that bonus content, please become a member at patreon.com slash attached. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, all of the many places, please consider rating, review it, and of course, subscribe. So a really fun episode we have lined up for you. But before we get to all of that, what's going on? Tell me stories. Woods, what's going on in your life? How's it going? The, tell me a deep Pretty, secret. Tell me a deep, dark a deep secret. secret. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Uh, dare. I choose dare <laughs> instead. Just kidding. Um, I'm pretty sure you know my secrets. I was just going to say I've been walking my dog a lot lately, uh, intentionally oh. trying to do that more now that the weather, uh, well, actually for the last few months has not been that hot in Texas. We have a lot of months where it's so hot. Is and it's, the weather outside delightful or is it frightful? Oh, for is it it is delightful uh, it's lovely how lovely but also because if i don't walk him consistently then he gets to be very like pulley on the leash right oh. like he'll be he's very strong and he's stronger than me oh. and um i'm small and weak and oh. uh so i have like um decided i'm really going to train him to be just a really good walker because there's this other woman in the neighborhood who consistently walks her very large dog at the same time oh. and it's just a really interesting daily moment of like shame and embarrassment <laughs> while her like gorgeous golden retriever just stops like the whole time just slowly walks next to her. She's at a leisurely pace. This woman's never jogged as far as I can tell. I've never observed her running. There's no like athleticism happening. And so the dog's walking at a regular human pace. Yeah, normal pace. Just next to her perfectly the whole time. Oh my gosh. And when they see a dog coming, I don't even see her give any commands. I've never once seen her tell this dog anything. The dog will sit and then lay down and just watch us walk by. And by walk, I mean <laughs> my dog <laughs> will see this dog coming and every day I dread, like, please don't time this. And it's so many days where we are passing each other on the same road in the same subdivision and my dog is dragging me to hell <laughs> while her dog is laying on the ground watching So well me behaved. Pretend that I, oh, sh no, it's fine. No, leave it. No, look, no, no, stay. Say, okay, sit. I'm feeding him treats for all this bad behavior because I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just trying to get any control that I can. And so that's what I've been up to lately in the morning hours. That's um, amazing. I thought the shorter number of daylight hours might help put me under cover of darkness. And oh. no, she and her dog both have this gorgeous, long, flowing golden hair. They just slowly come to a pause and watch me struggle every morning. So good morning, neighbor. Good morning, neighbor. That's what I've been up to. I love it. 
That's lovely, though. At least you have yeah. friends well, in your neighborhood or like I, from a never, distance. <laughs> never met the thing. <laughs> and to be fair, I'm not sure she's eager to meet me. <laughs> I mean, the straight chaos that I bring every morning. Uh, it's going good. Good, good, good. I love good, how good. neither of you have changed your route, though. No, right. <laughs> right. I'm going to stick this out. Yeah. <laughs> There are days where I'm like, I don't think I'm going to see her. And then she comes around the corner. I say, oh, crap. Do you have you guys ever waved at each other, made eye contact? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, we'll okay, sort of okay. acknowledge. It's a little hard to acknowledge somebody while you're trying to get control of your adolescent animal that's just losing his shit. I mean, it's just, it's fine. I try mostly not to make eye contact. Um, so. Oh, mercy. Sessa, what's up with you? Not much. I'm nursing my way back to health. And, oh my uh, gosh, your I've, voice is so sultry. You're bringing I, your I sexy, sort of sultry voice to the podcast. Be, yeah, the only benefit to ever getting like a cold <laughs> is that I get to engage in like my voice differently, and which it always ends up being like lower and a little raspier in a way that feels like what I want my voice to typically yeah. sound like in some ways. But um, generally speaking, I am okay otherwise, but uh, the cold has me struggling to taste food that I love and so oh, it's been no. a real like bummer just to be eating really bland foods the last week um it's a weird though there is a window of time during the day where I'm fine where I can really taste and eat well and then I get to a portion of the evening where I'm like oh it doesn't taste like anything so I'm like the body works so weird it just reminded me of people who really struggle with taste buds and like you know will report like they don't really taste their food a lot. And I'm like, that would drive me nuts. Like, I don't enjoy cooking or eating unless I can really enjoy the taste of the food. Taste so, and smell the food. Yeah. yeah I'm really agree. missing that part. So uh, we wish you a speedy recovery. Hopefully you'll be feeling better before you know it. Yes. Thank you. Plan on it. I have just been pounding through some books, you guys. I've been reading... I'm going to use air quotes around that. I've been reading a, a new book series. It's called Court of Thorns and Roses. Have you guys heard of it? No. no. That's no. fine. It's a five-book series. I'm on book three right now. I found out that um, someone just bought the rights to turn it into a TV show, and it's in production for a TV show. So oh. I just in time found this series so I can be – pretentious and say oh the books were better <laughs> but they are really good i'm looking forward to seeing what the tv show looks like hopefully it'll be good but court of thorns and roses this series is pretty good i enjoy it highly recommend 10 out of 10 would recommend something like that that's a pretty high rating 10 out of 10 yeah i mean most things are either 10 out of 10 i guess i mean when you love books though you love them you're never like oh they're fine they're great you become real hardcore yeah yeah, yeah it's true yeah no i do that with a lot of things like i hyper fixate on something and i'm like dude that's all i do and then i like i'm done with it and then i move on to something else yeah. and i hyper listeners on. might be familiar <laughs> long time listeners might be familiar with, that with my pattern yeah 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 it's something that has been going on my entire life uh when it comes to like uh entertainment wise like mm -hmm. other things i'm mm -hmm. fairly consistent with but in terms of entertainment i usually hyper fixate on something and i'm like oh it's really good i love it it's the best thing in the world i love it so much and then i like drop it and move on to another thing Done. uh yeah <laughs> first up pop and culture we learn about relationships from our friends like you all and our family i've learned all about how to be in relationships from you two but a lot of what we think about love and relationships actually come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sesson, what you got for us this week? So I'm going to talk about a show that I've talked a little bit about before, um, and that is Love is Blind. Third season just wrapped and was posted on Netflix, so I'm... Uh, assuming those who watch it have already binge watched it because it was another great season, another hit season, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> 10 out of 10 would recommend. Yeah, I mean, again, I struggle with those dating, you know, marriage shows a lot, but there's something about this one that just really captivates my attention. And so I watched it and uh, had thoughts about every couple but definitely there's one couple 
on the show who in the finale, um, their name, um, the couple was, uh, I don't want to pronounce her name wrong, but uh, Zaneb and Cole. Um, Zaneb and Cole, okay. Or Zainab, maybe I'll say. Um, and they, you know, got to the finale and like the other couples were to make a decision. Are we going to marry or are we not? You know, meet a, sort of walk down the aisle profess their feelings and then you know when asked they would either say no or yes to getting married and so um in this finale i think many people um like myself may have been shocked by just the way one of them said no um uh z really i call her z because i know her of course no i don't um uh really gave cole a mouthful um at the end and didn't just say no like most contestants do but explained herself for, for in terms of why she was saying no um and expressed that she felt um disrespected by him um and was really hurt by his comments towards her and that he really hurt her and her self-esteem throughout the time they were together wow. um and so some of that i think came to was surprising for viewers because in the way the show was edited, we didn't get to see as much of that tension oh. that she felt around how she was feeling around the way he was treating her in terms of her body. And um, on the reunion show, she provided even more information and rationale for her decision, um, you know, talking about her feeling body shamed by him throughout their time together and um, also went on to talk about how that treatment um you know, really affected her mental health and her eating habits. Oh, and so oh, there were wow. definite glimpses of his focus on her body, but they had this really interesting, sarcastic dynamic. So I wasn't sure watching it that it was really so much that until like she really, you know, spoke to it at the end of the yeah. season there. Um, but I'm not interested in who said what or, you know, trying to make sense of the decision. Ultimately, she really was hurt by him and he um i think was processing it all and i'm not sure um took accountability at the time but like since then they've sort of come together and talked about it i think i don't know but i'm really interested in the body shaming piece because i think um that is something that couples face in their relationships in terms of the mm. types of conversation that we're having and i don't think um until this recent decade we've really talked about body shaming in the way that we do now it's a lot more at the forefront and I don't know that we talk so much about it within romantic relationships, no, particularly yeah. established ones. But um, so body shaming, like, what is it, right? Like some people might be thinking like, okay, I have heard this word, I'm not exactly sure. But in general, right, it's this um, humiliating someone, um, whether you know them or not, uh, by mocking them or making critical comments about their body shape and size or something related to their um, physical presentation. And so it can be about their weight, about their attractiveness, about their age, even the clothing, like, and how it fits on them and body hair, you know, the food that they're intaking or not, um, the way they wear or don't wear makeup, right, and what they need or don't need with that. Um, mm -hmm. And it could occur not just um, between romantic partners, but people can be body shamed by um, friends, by family. Mm by coworkers and by complete strangers on platforms like social media, right? Um, one form of body shaming, you know, our cyberbullying is body shaming and it yeah. can happen through all forms of social media as well. And so of course we are like a very image saturated culture, right? Like where we make, we post a lot, we show a lot and often there's comparisons that people make between the real people that they see on social media and then these images that they see in movies or, you know, models or whatever. And they do a lot of comparing and even basing it off of their own sense of like who I'm attracted to, I'm going to comment on your body. or And so people feel really entitled to speak to what other people look like on social media, but also in person. I mean, I think we all agree that we've experienced that in our lives from people right oh, and yeah. people who yeah. in many cases love us and who really care about us and who we love and care about and who would argue that if they did it they never did it with intention to harm or even knew what they were saying was body shaving so it's pretty pervasive but yet it has this pretty big effect too that i think we're not necessarily accounting for 
when we think about um, relationships. And so, you know, it can lead to um, various different things, including depression, anxiety, eating disorders, body dysmorphia disorder, self-harm, suicide, um, emotional distress, uh, low self-esteem, among other things, right? And it can cause relationship tension as well. Um, so I want to just take a moment and focus on the relational element to it. You know, what do we do yeah. when a partner engages in body shaming, right? When they demonstrate that, you know, do we feel entitled to say something about it? Is it their opinion? So they should be able to say it or is there like boundaries we should set around that? I think there needs to be a little bit more conversation that doesn't necessarily exist now around what it means to do that in a relationship and like yeah are we aware of our own biases and perceptions of bodies and how we project that onto other people um from everything from saying like you know i'm going to make your portion for dinner smaller tonight to you right. know are you going to wear that you know the little things we just don't <laughs> account for like we don't think of body shaming but especially as it adds up in the relationship yeah. and what that does one psyche and sense of confidence and like a sense mm -hmm. of like am I attractive to my partner do I feel connected to my partner um it can be really harmful I think this is such a really I mean thank you so much for bringing this up I think it it can be really harmful and uh negative but I'm also thinking about um some of the research that I'm doing and other people are doing around like diabetes education and family-based diabetes education program where one of the like underlying ideas is to kind of um, get the support of the family and educate everybody around how to eat healthy and like reminders for your family members with diabetes about eating healthy and like remind each other and things like that. So it's a really fine line between like when that can spin over into like being negative and being emotionally damaging versus a healthy reminder because I care about your health and well-being. Um, especially when someone is diagnosed with diabetes, right? There's obviously always going to be um, a, a gradient there. Um, but I think the difference is when it's purely around the health and the longevity of your partner and your loved ones and your family members versus just the aesthetic pleasingly, quote unquote, whatever, um, comments around that. I would say would be the main difference between, you know, having conversations around healthy eating um, and when those conversations are harmful. Would you guys agree with that, that that's kind of one of the maybe primary differences between those two types of conversations, the body shaming versus healthy eating and adhering to like diet regime because of like a diabetes or a heart disease diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, I think there is that tension that people hold between I care about my partner's health. I'll just use partners, for example. Yeah. Um, and I find that what I'm attracted to looks different. And it is something I feel entitled to speak to in terms of my partner. I think when you can articulate as a partner your reasons for addressing, you know, say it's around health, right? Like in diabetes. And the reason you bring up these issues because you really are concerned about their health, but realize it's connected to their body and the way they look right. and like acknowledge that it's a complex sort of set of dynamics um, and be able to talk about that. I think that is more helpful than to make the assumption that because I intend this to be more about their health, right. they should right. not be yeah. offended yes. by my right. conversation. Like you have to really recognize the two are somewhat connected and call that to light in the way you're exactly. commenting and that's i completely agree with you and that's some of the harder more complicated aspects of these kind of family-based diabetes or hypertension interventions around um, health behaviors is making sure those conversations are open like that and you're not just reading each other's minds as well and paying attention to intent versus impact is what i feel like i hear you both saying is that your intentions can be well-meaning and it may not necessarily predict that the impact on how you're communicating that may be well-received. Mm -hmm. And there are people who have a history of the body shaming, right? Like they've experienced right. it over a lifetime. And so having conversations about 
how one feels about their body, how one feels like other people have commented on their body or policed their body. Like, I think those are things couples among the multitude of issues they should be talking about early in their relationship. This is yeah. one of those things. So you have a sense of how thoughtful and careful you have to be when bringing these things up. You know, there are some people you can make certain comments and they don't attribute that to like something about their body and feel ashamed, right? Like it doesn't provoke and trigger the same reactions. Whereas others, it's like, that's a lifetime worth of hurt and injury that when you bring up, it's like, it can Mm -hmm. really cause some damage in ways that you have no Mm -hmm. intention. So I think it's really critical to understand each other's history in that way too. Yeah, and thinking of it more as like you and your partner are a team together against that disease rather than you're trying to tell your partner how to manage the disease. I think that also kind of that team mentality will help. Um, But as you're saying, like a lot of the body shaming that we see on social media, these television shows aren't housed at all within this like health aspect that we're talking about it is a lot more um venomous and it has a lot more uh vitriol or it has meanness behind it more so than the health aspect that we're talking about at all yeah it is definitely layered and our bodies change over time you know especially when we have kids as we age as we experience stress like this is something that all couples face and i think it's you know what your intention we're going into a relationship and being attracted to your partner may look you may feel differently as time goes on right like how do you hold that tension within yourself knowing i don't feel attracted and maybe i feel like the way to gain that is by commenting in a way that gets them to do something about it as opposed to you learning how to maybe look at your partner as who they are now and really adjusting your expectations around body image and what that looks like for you in terms of like what it is to be attracted to your partner like and sort of expanding your own understanding and definition of attractiveness so if the person you're with now they present differently right and like it's not up to them to change that necessarily again unless it's like health and even then you still really take that Mm -hmm. in a very you address that that carefully so yeah yeah, if your expectation is that your partner is going to look like a 25-year-old human their entire life, then um, those expectations need to be adjusted to maybe like more based in reality. So, you know, one of the things about these reality shows that I really enjoy is they bring these issues up for us as a culture that yep. we have to really sometimes pause and have conversations about. So I appreciated that about this season as hard as it was for the real life people affected by it i think they help bring up a conversation especially in the context of relationships yeah it's a really important conversation to have Next up, we do an academic deep dive into a new article out earlier this year in the Journal of Sociological Research Online titled, Adult Children Move Out, Family Meals and Reflections on Parental Self-Sacrifice at the Moment of Transition. The research done by Drs. Rinku Sikora and Skaronska at the University of Gdańsk in Poland explores the evolution of shared eating practices of parents and adult children. Mealtime is a very important family ritual. We know from earlier research that families that share meals together more often tend to have healthier diets and that regularly engaging in family meals is associated with a decreased risk of obesity for children, adolescents, young adults, and parents. Family meals have also been linked to greater emotional well-being and family connectedness and communication among family members. The research we're diving into in this episode explores not only family mealtimes among families with adult children, but also uses the idea of sacrifice in families to explore how this may shift as older kids launch from the family's home. Although sacrifice was initially tied to kind of religious practices, it has also been linked to relationships and the practice of someone denying their own wants and needs to benefit someone else. Specific to sharing meals and families, sacrifice may look like compromising on maybe serving dinosaur chicken nuggets instead of a delicious spinach quiche or scheduling a meal around soccer practice or giving up relaxation on the weekends to go grocery shopping and prep meals and the like. 
As these authors point out, a lot of mealtime sacrifices may fall to moms who are especially responsible for food-related labor in the household. But how does this process of planning, negotiating, and sharing family meals shift as kids grow up? So fascinating. So awesome. Sarah, please say it's time to dig into some delicious research. (laughs) See what I did there? So this project is qualitative research, meaning that they explored what you're describing, Patricia, using in-depth interviews with uh, dual income, meaning both are earning an income outside the home, couples, male and female. Uh, And these couples were 50 to 64 years old, uh, and they were interviewed together, both of these partners, which is a really uh, very important difference in thinking about when we interview people for research because they're telling these stories about how their families evolved through this change of launching adult children. They're telling these stories together. So a lot of the narrative, a lot of the family stories that these researchers captured are then influenced by these um, husbands and wives uh, telling stories together and sometimes correcting each other and their memories about what this looked like. (laughs) So they specifically interviewed these couples uh, about changes in the everyday life that they led after their kids had left the home. So questions around things like, how did you usually spend time with your children before they left? What meals did you have together? And also questions about how that looks now, like how often do your children visit? What are the occasions for when they visit? How are the meals different compared to meals before moving out? So they asked lots of different questions and explored this change over this transition to launching adult kids with these couples over time. And what they found was that, in general, family life involves many kinds of sacrifice. In sort of hearing how you describe sacrifice, Patricia, I think it's really easy probably for us to identify many, many kinds of sacrifices that as parents we make for our kids, for our partners, for the sake of our family. Um, In specific to mealtime, what they found is that parents often sacrificed food preferences. In this sample, they especially made kids' preferences a priority. So things like cooking meat when they would themselves prefer to be vegetarian, uh, for example, and not necessarily um, in this sample talking about making kids eat what was served, but really needing to account for what kids would eat and what kids prefer to eat. They also found that people, parents, sacrificed time for meal prep and sitting at the table together. So really prioritizing kids' schedules and saying things like your life revolves around them. And so that's just what you have to do. When sacrifice was related to family meals, it was primarily moms and wives. It was almost never dads. So there's a really strong gender component in what they found here. Again, these couples are 50 to 64. Uh, In the long run, sacrificing parents describe maybe feeling like their life is meaningful. They had a sense of control. They feel needed. And also describe feeling like they've lived life according to their values. Their sacrifices Mm. resulted in their kids' success in life. Also maybe a flavor of this uh, orientation helping to cope with frustrations of what they themselves have missed out on. Like my sacrifice helped launch my kids into successful careers, into successful families and relationships. Uh, And that is... A balance I need to recognize because of missing out on my own career, for example. Um, when children left the home, they found it brought about what they called a radical transformation. So some parents cooked less or uh, would transition to making fast, easy food. Some gave up on making dinners altogether. Uh, and they described empty nest relief. So no longer needing to adjust to what their kids preferred to eat, no longer needing to schedule around them. That was primarily a lot of relief that was described, which I think is pretty important. Um, And then what they found is that when adult children come back to visit, there's four ways that they found that this can sort of play out. And it can really trigger a return to that sacrificing that they made when their kids were younger. So the first theme that they found, the first way that this can work out, it can, they said, launch a performance pattern from the full nest period. So these are families that parents that immediately sort of revert to, I'm going to put in 
a lot of effort. It's going to be really time consuming. I'm going to make the food that my kids love to make. And these kids in this pattern accept or even demand that effort. Uh, They're talking with mom about what to cook. Mom might even bribe kids to visit (laughs) with a promise of like, I'm going to make your favorite food. And they feel a duty to provide enjoyable family time. So some of them were describing feeling like when my kids come home, back when they were living here and they were younger, we'd just sort of hang out, right? It was just casual. We'd spend time together, enjoy it. But now it feels like they're guests and I really have to put on a show. Like I'm, it's like a Beauty and the Beast scenario here. They're just rolling out all the gray Uh, stuff. Yes. The the second scenario, uh, they found that other times families, um, parents specifically may be willing to make that sacrifice, but kids don't accept it. So they might refuse to come home for dinner or refuse to accept leftovers to take home, which I laugh at because I feel like a that's something also that feels sort of um, – uh, you could easily see that. Ha- no, no, no. I made extra. You have to take it with you. No, no, no. I couldn't possibly take it. They dance at the door where you're like being handed Tupperware containers. Uh, or they don't necessarily want anything particular for dinner. And that can sometimes be experienced as disappointing, especially by moms. Yeah. They're wanting to sort of sacrifice in this way and their kids are like, meh, not really a big deal. Um, But if parents don't offer the sacrifice in a third situation, kids might be disappointed. Uh, If they're not necessarily sort of offering to cook a big meal, I'm sort of sad because it's otherwise something that's really important or I really look forward to it. And these parents are like, peace, I did that. I did my time. Uh, They didn't say that. That was not a quote from these interviews whatsoever. Uh, The fourth situation that they found was this process in families where sometimes the sacrifice is gradually faded away. Mm. Kids are treated more as partners now who can contribute to mealtime. And these parents felt very relaxed about their kids' visits. Yeah. They really, in these families, prioritized the comfort and joy of being together. And they just didn't want the extra effort of these big meal times to disturb that, which I thought was such a lovely description. I love and that, yeah. uh, I'm sure the kids yeah, are less stressed I, out visiting as well. Probably, you could imagine. I mean, um, you know, if you're an adult child, you can make your own meals now. Like if you have a something special, like once in a while, there just feels like more balance, right, yeah. in that situation. So again, as you described earlier, Patricia, this research was done in Poland specifically, and mealtime is a very culturally influenced practice. So it's certainly could have affected findings, which these authors themselves talk about. Uh, And so it's not exactly clear how much this might apply to families in the U.S. or in other countries. But um, uh, in Poland, just like in all other places, mealtimes are very culturally defined, right? So what they are describing is that lunches at work and school are rare there. So family dinners are earlier in the day, tend to be right after kids get home, which you can see could very much affect mom's ability if she's cooking to work paid work outside the home interesting yeah uh there's also in europe apparently the lowest amount of money spent on meals out there's like a real strong emphasis on eating at home and the nutritional benefits of eating at home and uh also on parental obligations to their kids which um especially for women is informed in that country by um catholic influences on polish family traditions Mm. so really interesting cultural component and also i think some broad takeaways that probably listeners can identify with if in general, my first reaction was if you're home for the holidays, if you're spending time over the next few weeks, right, with family, yeah. maybe help your mom, your grandma, your wife. Uh, if you are with a woman who is spending time cooking and if she offers you leftovers, maybe just, just take, take them. them. <laughs> just, it's not that hard. You don't even need to eat them. She won't even know. Uh, just maybe take that food and help out because these women just read like they were tired. Um, <laughs> it was important to them and it was valuable. And also it's a sacrifice that it was a lot of labor that they were putting into that kind of showing love, right? Um, and looking for ways to contribute. How can adult kids partner with parents to decrease the burden of the holidays? It doesn't necessarily need to be so overwhelming and intense and the way to maybe sort of negotiate that so you're not sort of resulting in that behind the scenes disappointment that these authors found that maybe sort of um it was because maybe they weren't talking about this openly and so it might be helpful to sort of ahead of any time you're spending with your family over the next week or so to really be thinking about can you talk openly about how to prioritize enjoying being together and what 
each of you want that time together to look like so that the responsibility is not only uneven, but to avoid that responsibility being unspoken about and then people feeling disappointed and feeling like they don't yeah. actually get to see each other. So I think it's a really very interesting project, uh, really very interesting study to think about sacrifice specifically and really important to think about the gender imbalance that they found too. Uh, so I think in general, uh, partnering with your parents could be a much more enjoyable time for the holidays yeah. than any of these other high sacrifice scenarios. Yeah. And also, like you said, just take home the leftovers. Just do it. Just take them home. Just, it's really not that hard. Yeah. It makes me think of my brother-in-law and sister-in-law don't ever take home leftovers from when we're at my husband's family. And I'm like, just say yes. Just It's not that hard. Just say yes. <laughs> Uh, they're lovely people, but I was surprised. Um, it also makes me think of, do you ever watch Seth Meyers' show? Do you know Seth Meyers? <laughs> Have you heard Have of you this? Have you heard of this guy? Seth Meyers, gentlemen? <laughs> I do not watch it. Anyway, every Thanksgiving uh, episode, he has his whole family on, his brother, his mom, and his dad. And it's really cute. But anyway, over the years, I guess he's been maybe on for like even 10 years now, but... Anyway, his mom has always said, even when they were children, uh, when she turns it's 65 or 70, there's some like cutoff that she's not cooking anymore. Like she's done. And Seth's dad never thought that it was like real. Well, like two years ago, she turned that age and she's just stopped cooking. Done. <laughs> I love it. That sounds amazing. Like she's like, I'll make myself something like we can go out to eat like I've been cooking for like 50 years or 40 years however long it is I'm done we can either go out to eat or you can cook your turn <laughs> whatever you want so that also seems fair as well yep I love it I love that idea that sounds so hard to actually but I <laughs> but you did um, it well yeah allegedly, I don't know allegedly yes it sneaks in a sandwich here <laughs> there maybe <laughs> Um, it really made me think about um, also the experience of cooking together, like the prep time, right? Like that, you know, when I cook, um, when we're eating, I'm really excited for the sort of the fruits of my labor to be enjoyed. And like that mm. piece really feels good. But I really like the time spent working on the meal too, as long as I'm not doing it alone. Alone, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's important distinction. Yeah, I really like that piece. I think there's so much that can be gained from having mm. your children involved with the yeah. meal prep Absolutely. process. And I think yeah. we don't often think about like, how do we encourage that piece too? Like some people really like to cook alone. Like I get that. My mom was, don't come into my kitchen while I'm cooking. Like she needed to fling things around and move about. Yeah. Doesn't <laughs> like the overlap of people. Whereas if I have somebody in the kitchen with me, I just am so much happier making the meal. Yeah. And so we're building that habit now with my son, like where he chops this thing or this thing. And it's interesting. He gets so distracted by what he's doing or not distracted by focus. When I'm asking him questions, he's happy to answer them, right? He's not so worried about like oh, filtering yeah, himself right. when you're like sitting there directly in front of him and going, how was school? What are you doing? And getting nothing, right? Like. He's chopping something up and answering questions because he's not so focused on being resistant <laughs> to it all. There's something really <laughs> nice about that. So, yeah. I agree. I like that piece too. And maybe uh, along the way, incorporate the kids into the cooking of the food and the mm -hmm. feeding and the eating of the food and um, things like that. Very I lovely. think it starts early. I do think you got to get like to do it as like a full adult. Share responsibility. Yeah. And then to start it early and have that practice of like knowing what it feels like to be in the kitchen and, and working mm. together. Yeah, I completely agree. We do that too. It's a whole lot of fun. Woohoo! Boo! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, families, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social media, blogs, and those numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard any advice you'd like us to talk about it, send it to us. We'd love to talk about it. 
Email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all at Attach Podcast. While you're on the World Wide Web, you know, just hanging out there, chilling with your homies, um, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our podcast on your very favorite podcast app or YouTube. You can see all of our lovely faces uh, on YouTube if that's um, something that you're into. You don't have to be. It's totally fine. Also, every week we have a bonus good or bad advice for our Patreon subscribers. If you want that sweet, sweet bonus content, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash attached. So today, in honor of thinking about relationships during all of these numerous winter holidays that we have coming up, um, I found a post by um, Sahil Bloom. Well, it's actually on Twitter, but I saw the posts on Instagram. You know how social media works. So he says, I recently came across data on who we spend our time with um, over the course of our lives. Um, These insights are simultaneously inspiring and depressing from his point of view. So there's six graphs that everyone needs to see. I'll describe the graphs. We'll also link this post um, in the show notes so you can look at them yourselves. So I'll describe it and then I'll say what his takeaway is. And then I'm curious what you two's takeaway is. It's not necessarily a traditional good advice, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Are you ready? Yes. Good. So the first one is uh, time spent with parents. It peaks in childhood and declines after age 20. So here are his takeaways. Time with family is limited. Time with parents declines sharply after age 20. You may only see your loved ones a few more times. Prioritize and cherish every moment. So time spent with family. Oh, there we go. That's the graph. Thoughts. Prioritize and cherish every moment. Woods? So I uh, have seen these charts a few times that he's referring Mm -hmm. to, and I agree that they do feel depressing every time that I see them. And this is one of the charts that makes me the saddest uh, because it really does look like this really steep decline in how many hours a day you spend with your family as you get older. Um, With parents and siblings, yeah, specifically. Right, yeah. And so I appreciate that takeaway that he's describing, that it's really important to, um, if your family is safe and close and connected, and uh, it can be really valuable to prioritize the time that you get to spend with them and really sort of focus energy there. Uh, I also sort of wonder in maybe the difference in quality time Mm. that we spend as we age, right? If I'm 15 years old, the hours I spend per day with my parents or siblings, my immediate sort of caregivers, family of origin, is going to be higher because we are very likely co-residential. And not all of that time we spend together may be valuable. As an older child now, I don't need to go back to (laughs) spending time (laughs) um, doing chores side by side or like having like homework stress in this kitchen with my brother at the same time, right? Fair, So uh, my hope is that the shift in that graph can also be reflective of maybe spending more quality time together. When you spend it together. Or at least maybe that's a goal. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Sessa, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, I'm curious with that graph, does it show a significant increase by the time people sort of start having children around that age where... Or did it just show a... Yeah, it's just your own parents and siblings is this graph. Right. So, hmm. yeah, I guess I'm a little surprised by it. But in general, because I assume that, you know, in your 20s, right, you're busy sort of exploring and dating and, you know, spending a large amount of your time in friend groups. And then as you settle down, um, sort of you go back to prioritizing that time with family of origin, I think differently. And um, ultimately, though, as far as the advice, I mean, in theory, it sounds great. Like, I I agree, like, of course, um, to take that time and to cherish the time that you do have is a wonderful thing to be able to do if you have the healthy dynamics, if you have um, the time 
and space too i mean proximity wise a lot of i think young adults are moving further and further away from their family of origins for work or other reasons but i think um investing that time whether it's face to face or through calls or whatever it might be is great and i think having lost a parent like i would do anything to have my time back with my mom and having thought about the years that i didn't spend that time you know i have yeah. a lot of regrets about that so i think any person who's lost a really close one will probably always recommend or err on the side you know of encouraging people to really um not take it for granted that time because it is special yeah. I agree. I also am curious at like if this accounts for like what you're saying, Sasset, of like moving states over sometimes from our parents and siblings. Like, does this take into account like the text messages and phone calls that maybe are more regular or more uh, typical for communication? I don't know. That was just another thought I had. Let's move on to the next one. This is time spent with friends. It kind of goes up and peaks at age 18. And then decline sharply to like basically a low baseline. Key takeaways, embrace friendships, uh, breadth, but focus on depth, which was interesting. Uh, cherish those who are with you through good times and bad. Um, and then invest your energy in healthy, meaningful friendships that last. Um, and that graph there kind of goes up at 18 and then kind of declines throughout the rest of and then kind of maybe staples out around like 36 39 and then it's kind of level what are your thoughts uh Sesson, you want to go first are those good takeaways what other takeaways would you add or thoughts about that friendships I mean, again, I think friendships can bring a lot of meaning into our lives, right? They can fulfill us. They can uplift us. They can do so much for us. And so I think um, in general, having a strong social support system has many health benefits, mental health benefits. So all in all, it's great. But it's sometimes at that age or as you get older, your friendships are competing with all of these other things that you're trying to do and do well, you know, be a mm -hmm. partner to someone, be a parent to someone develop a career and establish that. So I think to expect that you'd be able to put the same energy and time is unrealistic, but to um, take the time that you do have and know how to be a really present friend to someone, that seems important and hard thing sometimes to do because we're so mm. caught up in so many things. So I would, and especially with competing with social media and like all of these other things that capture our attention, like how do we show up in friendships when we are spending what should be that time to connect and actually connecting and so i think that's a great thing but something we struggle with more and more it feels like yeah okay so you like the invest your energy in healthy meaningful friendships that last but understand that it could definitely be a struggle uh woods thoughts i mean it seems a bit like a sort of a life course norm what you're describing right that um in emerging adulthood friendships are a really powerful connection, a really important source of support. I think uniquely so that that is sort of when we're peaking in terms of how important our peers are is adolescence and emerging adulthood. Uh, and that that naturally declines with time as we maybe create our own families. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's a norm um, just to sort of contextualize that maybe a little bit. Um, I am also sort of thinking about, I don't think that what they're suggesting is, I think it is good advice to um, really invest your energy in healthy, meaningful, lasting relationships. I think that that's uh, very good advice, of course, just for all the reasons Sesson just described. And also it makes me think about how many hours we spend at work and then how valuable it could be, if possible, to spend your time in a workplace that has coworkers that have the capability of maybe having friend qualities uh, because we spend so much time there. And when you work alongside people who don't care about you and would not be defined as friends, uh, it could be maybe sometimes more challenging. Yeah, that's a really good point. So the next one is time spent with partner. Uh, it trends upward steadily from birth till death. Um, key takeaways, 
Who you choose as a partner is the most important decision you'll ever make. Find someone you genuinely enjoy spending time with. Never settle for less than love. Here is the image. Steadily increasing, kind of levels out and then increases another kind of hump of increasing when you're in your 60s. What are your thoughts, Woods? I would agree with the takeaway that it's a really important decision <laughs> that you make. Uh, the steady increase in time, even after sort of partnering with that person that that amount of time increases yeah. which makes sense because if you partner with somebody and then you all go on to have kids <laughs> the first chart suggests your kids aren't going to spend any time with you by the time <laughs> they get to college anyways <laughs> so you're left alone with this partner so it's an important decision for so many reasons not just the number of hours a day that you spend with them and also uh, to treat it with the seriousness that it deserves knowing the long term the very long range impact that it has on your health and well-being and also at a minimum what you're pointing to who you spend time with yeah really important sesan thoughts yeah there's two parts to that question um that i one agree with and the other don't so much um is and the first part of like, like what sarah is saying is like the importance of picking the carefully um it has implications that extend beyond you right including your children and your family are affected mm -hmm. by whoever you bring into your life so you know it is critical right like i think so important to be intentional about that choice and i think when people make um a commitment to someone they need to be thinking about all of the life course right like in all the ways like that will affect them, their loved ones, their children that they create together. I, it is just, and also like the end of life, right? Like how do you want your end of life to look like? It couldn't be more important yet. I feel like people mm -hmm. really rush into deciding they wanna be with someone for the rest of their lives without thinking about all of those things, which is a real challenge I think in many societies. Um, as far as it's all about, like, I think you said love or something along that lines. Never settle for less than love. Yeah. I think, you know, we know throughout history and even present day in a lot of different cultures, it's not necessarily about loving someone that sort of helps you decide if you're going to be with them for the rest of your life. But people do it for companionship, right? For stability. Yeah. All these other reasons that can also make sense. Um and people oftentimes uh, conflate love and like lust too, right? And those can be very different as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think you can fall in love with someone after, you know, you've made a commitment to them. Of course, I think love feels great. So you want that to be there. But I think many people have successful, caring, loving relationships who initially are find that person and commit to them for the rest of their lives out of companionship or you know uh, yeah. other reasons so i think um, it's more complicated than that completely agree with you both um the next one is time spent with the co-workers we've kind of a little bit alluded to this as well um steady during the prime working years obviously 20 to 60 years old um key lessons you'll spend a lot of time at work um, who you choose to work with is one of the most important decisions you make. Find work and co-workers that create energy in your life is the key takeaway. There's the graph there. What are we thinking, Sesson? Yeah, I mean, it's it, where you work is an important decision, but we also know, especially in our culture, like people will change jobs um at least a few times and you know even careers the part of it i really think is really critical is to um set some really healthy boundaries with the people that yeah. you work with and not assume that you're going to go in there and have people that you connect with and or force that connection yeah. right they're all going to be your best friends yeah not... but i do think to invest time at work with people who um really do bring meaning to your life or who you know offer you something so it's an exchange right like there's not this thing where you're just constantly giving in that relationship but 
you know, there's a reciprocity there. I think that's important with work. I think in terms of energizing us, I, you know, it's good to get the healthy energy from people, but like, I don't know what that line looks like at work. Sometimes I think you just want to be thoughtful about it because at the end of the day, you're balancing friendship and like a collegial relationship requires a lot of thought. Yeah. If one goes sour, you don't want it to sour the other two. That can be really challenging. Um, Woods, what are your thoughts? I know I just got done saying in the context of decreasing amount of time spent with friends that working in a place where people can be or have friend qualities can be valuable. <laughs> it sounds like I'm immediately going to counter this. <laughs> but you're saying that on a podcast it's, where we do work together, but we also are friends. Yes. Well, that's true. I also, the takeaway that I uh, have from this graph is not the same and not the same as this person is describing. Although I agree that can be valuable. I think there's only so much control you maybe have about how much you can create workplaces that are positive and creating what I'm not sure what the language was that he used creating energy that yeah. bring into your life or something. Uh, sure. I would say also this graph screams to me, we spend way too much time at work as a culture here. Um, and we spend a lot of that time with other people. Uh, so the takeaway for me is similar to what Sesson's saying in terms of having really strong, uh, important, meaningful work, family, work, life boundaries to prevent spillover and how work paid employment takes over our time, takes over our relationships. And also, if you are working in a place that is toxic or you have a toxic supervisor and you can get out of there, cut and run. The amount of hours spent with people who are toxic and the way that it can affect your mental health yeah. and your long-term potential Physical health, is yeah. so much more than we give it credit for. Uh, if you can get out, get Do out, it. go elsewhere. Yes, run. All right, last one. If you can do it, that is, of course. The last one is time spent alone. Um, I debated whether to end on this one. Um, so it's up to you two wonderful ladies to make this uh, end on a lovely light note. So time spent alone steadily increases throughout our lives. Um, key lessons, learn to embrace solitude. Uh, flex your boredom muscle regularly. Find happiness and joy in the time you have to yourself. There will be a whole lot of it as you get older. So there is the steady incline of time spent alone. Thoughts on these takeaways, Sesson? Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm curious. I think within some cultures that may not be totally true, right? Because I think I think that's a good point. Um there is throughout the life course you end up staying really connected to people and we also know based on research that um maintaining a strong social support system and connection throughout the life course is also really healthy and meaningful for our physical and mental health so like i think i like the idea of know how to be with yourself and be okay with that yeah. and know mm -hmm. how to um, you know, create energy from that and really fulfill yourself. But it's not, I think, in place of the connections, which are also still really important. I think when you find yourself isolated too much, that can, you know, result in many um, challenges, right, for emotionally, psychologically. And I think that that can be harmful. So I think there's a balance there that we have to be mindful of trying to strike as adults, because we could very easily find ourselves withdrawing from our communities, our families, yeah. and especially as we get older, right, and rationalizing that. It's like, oh, I spent many years, I want to just do me or do all, you know, convincing ourselves that it's okay just to be by ourselves only and that's the only way we can that should be acceptable because we're older and we've sort of done all that work and labor of being with people and connecting i think it's something we should try to achieve throughout the life course in a like healthy pace and consistency um but yeah i think there are some folks who feel really uncomfortable being on their own and i think that is something i would challenge people just to find ways to really do that and be okay with that but yeah okay woods what are your thoughts 
So, I mean, being alone is not the same thing as loneliness. Right. And uh, I think that's what Sesson's speaking to is I can hear sort of this uh, being alone can be lovely and enjoyable. And loneliness is really when we get concerned, when people feel isolated or they feel sad because they're alone or they feel like they don't have access to support that they otherwise need or would want. Um, what I see when you show these graphs sort of side by side is also this jump around retirement age to not only having more time alone, but also more time with your partner. And so again, I'm sort of thinking about what I saw when I see that coworker graph is when we retire, we get a lot more time in our life back to ourselves. And that can look like time with our partner and also time alone. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's both normative and also um, if we are still creating meaning, if we're sort of focused on generativity and what we're contributing to the next generation. And there's lots of ways that we can discover whole new selves around retirement and we need some of that time alone to do it. So, yeah, I love those takeaways, very positive. And, you know, um, this person says to find happiness and joys in the time you have to yourself, which I think is lovely. Um, but uh, speaking a little bit more to Sarah's point, if you do find yourself being lonely and feeling that kind of heaviness of being lonely, I don't know if you need to turn around and say, oh, I just need to be happy and content with this. I think it's also um, okay to reach out and find uh, friends, reach out to family that you have and try to spend more time with family if you genuinely are feeling lonely and not just alone. Um, I think it's okay just because the majority of people spend more time alone doesn't mean you have to. Like, it's okay. Go spend some time with people. That's cool too. Especially around the holidays. Ding! So as always, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all of those social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it. We'll see you in the new year.